Turn with me, if you would, this morning to John chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 16 through verse 18. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. Lord, again, we pray that you would guide. We pray that you would guide the words of thy word and the words of thy, of thy minister, that we might see Christ, that we might see him in his fullness and richness, that we might see him in his agony as he takes hell upon himself for us that we might not have to take hell. And so, Lord, help us to realize what a great Savior we have. You are God, second person of the Trinity, man and God. And so, Lord, as man, you were able to take our hell in your flesh. And, Lord, again, we thank you. You were also, as God, able in value to pay for a thousand worlds that sin like ours. But, Lord, you save your elect as the Father has given to you, given them to you and you went the distance for us and we thank you for it in Jesus holy name amen now again as we come back to John remember John is not a writer of plays and dramas he doesn't try to make his message one of again emotion And you see all the tears and the blood and all the things that he went through and that we're supposed to be touched by his agony. We should. But his purpose is to present Christ and his work completed for his people. And so we see that this morning as we look at the movies that have been made, the, the Passion, you know, a Hollywood production. People went away crying, but they haven't lived and changed their life any more. See, now, again, Linsky, a Lutheran theologian of the early 1900s, he wrote this in his commentary. He says, John only uses one word, one word for scourge, one word for crucify, and one word for resurrection. Kind of reminds you of the Apostles' Creed. Remember what it says? He was, he died, he was buried, He rose again. Those are the simple facts. If you would be a Christian, you must take them to bear in your heart and apply them and trust alone in Christ. Martin Luther put put it this way when he writes about Christ in Scripture and how you read the Scripture. He says, Wherefore, he that would correctly and profitably read Scripture should see to it that he finds Christ in it. Then he finds life eternal without fail. On the other hand, if I do not so study and understand Moses and the prophets so as to find that Christ came from heaven for the sake of my salvation, he became man, suffered, died, was buried, rose, and ascended to heaven so that through him I enjoy reconciliation with God, forgiveness of all my sins, grace, righteousness, and life eternal, then my reading in Scripture is of no help whatsoever 
to my salvation. It's only when we apply our faith in Christ alone and truly take Him at His Word that is given to us in His Word that we have salvation. Not works outside that, but works within it. Our works come because we believe Him, not to believe. And so again now, we see as we look this morning, we saw that in, in verse 16 is His final uh, time with Pilate. He's brought Him forward to release Him to His soldiers. Now, there were four soldiers that would take Christ. They would place the, the cross upon His shoulder and now they would lead Him away outside the gates of Jerusalem. It was close. Golgotha was very close to the gates of Jerusalem on a major road that passed close by it where He would be taken outside the gate which scriptures in the Old Testament are pictured as the sacrifices were burned outside the gate. When they finished the sacrifice and the bones and the entrails and the different parts that were not used, they would be burned outside the gate. That animal would receive the fire to completely wash away and cleanse him as the sacrifice for God's people. And so now, we see Christ like that lamb is led outside the gates for us. And that's how the writer of Hebrews says, we go to Him outside the gate. He's the Savior who is crucified on the cross, but He's also risen outside the gates of Jerusalem. And so now we see Him, as we come, we see again, and He's bearing the cross. He goes forth to the place of the skull. Now again, the very picture of the curse, death. We don't know where that was. There's a, what in Israel today, there's one place called Gordon's Calvary. It's on a mound that kind of looks like a skull. It's possible that they did mining there and that's where you get the eye holes and the nose and all to make it look like a skull. But, and it's right beside a bus station. The Catholics have one. It's probably possibly the, the true one. They have a big cathedral raised over it so you can't see much of it but the point is again we don't know and I think that's great because God knows the heart of man and if God had allowed them to say this is the place they'd have been worshiping that place but now Christ goes to this place of the skull it's a curse death is a curse a dead body is a cursed body and so because death was the curse upon sin and so now he says he goes forth carrying his cross. Now, uh, Matthew, I believe it is, tells us that as he goes, Christ himself, remember he's been beaten, he's bled, and we don't know how much blood, his head, his back, he's weak. And they force a man by the name of Simon the Cyrenian, who was probably from Egypt or Africa, who was there for the celebration, as appears he's a believer, and he takes the cross all the way to Golgotha from, for Christ as he goes that way. We find that Paul mentions this man and his family who become believers later on in his writings. And so again we see Christ, even in his taking his cross, we see him working his work of salvation in a man's heart. As he works in the man's heart who is hung with him. Now remember, as Pilate had tried to get Christ released by offering up 
Barabbas, who probably was going to be executed with Christ. This is where Pilate got his idea. What I'll do is I'll say, I'm going to let one of these two men go, and surely they would not want Barabbas. He was a murderer. He was a thief. He worked sedition against Rome. Everything that they wanted to get rid of Christ for is what he was, but they took him over Christ. And at the same time, it appears now that Herod saw a window open for him to bring some more insult to the Jews. So he gathers two more men to be sacrificed on the altar of the cross with Christ. Now they sacrifice for their own sins. And we find again in Matthew and Mark that again, they are on the outsides of Christ and one is becomes a convert, the other is not. We see a deathbed conversion right there. Pilate's idea is when he's hung between two criminals like this who deserve crucifixion, they will be insulted. Their king hangs between these two men. And now as we come to verse 18, remember that Christ suffered the pains in His flesh, but also He suffered under the spiritual drain of His agony. He was man, yes, but He was God, and upon Him was placed the curse of sin. It was as though He were a sinner Himself, though He was not. He took our place, He took our burden upon His shoulders, and He was going to the cross, as it were, to pay the debt that we owed to the law of God, to His Father who demanded complete and absolute perfect obedience. And so now as we see Him coming to this cross, we see Jesus, and it says, and where they crucified Him. Remember Linsky. The scourging was part of the crucifixion. It was part of His agony. That was when, again, I believe when Christ went there to be beaten, that Pilate sent Him there. They Remember they stripped Him? Another part of which was a part of the curse of the earth. God had cursed the ground and it brought forth uh, uh, thorns and thistles. Shame was the first thing that Adam and Eve had when they realized that they had sinned and they were ashamed because they had no clothes on. And so all along we see Christ and He's bearing our death, which again was the curse of sin. And so now again, and as He hangs on the tree itself, Again, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. And Paul picks that up in Galatians chapter 3. He became a curse for us. And so now as we look at this, we see at this moment, Christ in body and soul and spirit is in agony as He faces the payment of our sins. And so now we see again at this point on verse 18. This is the most important event in the history of mankind. I would say out of the billions of people alive today, very few of them even know about it or consider it when they read about it. It's just a story. This is the story of our salvation. This is the event then told by God Himself through the writers of what He did on that cross. And now Christ enters into that time And now Christ is fulfilling also Scripture. 
Remember again, David in Psalm 22, how he writes about the bulls of Bashan gaping at him with their mouths opening and cursing him. They part his garments, which we'll talk about next week. They hate him this much. And as he goes, he's taking the curse of death that belonged to us upon himself. And so now Jesus enters into that time. He's entering hell. The Apostles' Creed mentions He descended into hell. And as we look at those those words, we have to see that what He meant was, again, hell is not the place where people go after they died, the unbelievers. Hell, again, in the Greek and in in the Old Testament was known as Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. It ran and crisscrossed with the Gedron Valley. It was a lot more like a ridge. But it was the place in the Old Testament where the pagans and the Jews who had sinned against God and built altars, they built their altars there in the Hinnom Valley to offer their children to Moloch. Moloch was a huge giant image. Uh, Chronicles and in the kings you see where the kings when God judged them, they tore down those idols. And eventually, by the time of Christ, it was nothing but literally a garbage dump where they kept the fires going all the time. And so that becomes the picture of hell. It's the place where at the end of time, when Christ comes and He judges all men, the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left, it is when Christ now comes to judge the world in its finality. Already we have had our judgment in Christ. There's now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. He's not saying we don't sin. He's saying this is the end. When He says now there's no condemnation, He's talking about when Christ comes back again and all things are made right. The final judgment, this is the time when death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Gehenna, the eternal fires, which God Christ talks about, that burns day and night, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the agony of the unbeliever that he's talking about. So this is the agony that you and I deserve but it's the agony that Christ took in the flesh. And when He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? That's in Psalm 22 again. We see God Himself turns His back on Him. That's His entering into hell in separation from His Father. And so now this morning we see again also another fulfillment was in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich. Remember, he was placed on a cross between two criminals, evil criminals. These men were those whom they sought. These men were so bad they deserved to die on the cross. Now remember, the Romans did not crucify other Romans. No Roman ever died of crucifixion. But only slaves and those who were not Romans and were the worst of criminals were placed on the, this thing. It was a true picture of hell. Began 
again, I believe when Christ was scour- first of all scourged, that began when he again, we see the curse. They put a crown of thorns upon his head, bringing us back to Genesis when God cursed the ground for Adam's sin with thorns and thistles. They were, he was stripped of his clothing and they beat him. Again, another curse of the shame of nakedness. Put on a tree and hung. Cursed every man that is hung on a tree. And that's where he's in hell. It's not the length of time he's there. It's what has happened to him because who he is and what he's bearing. Our sins. Our sins as Christians were no different than those of unbelievers. We equally deserved hell. We deserved every ounce of hell's wrath upon us. And yet God chose us out before the foundation of the world and Christ died for us. And so we see crucifixion. It's one of the most excruciating executions in the history of mankind. There may be others that are worse, but this was one that again was was known at the top. Even, Even the Roman historians and all who wrote about it talked about how excruciating it was. And they said it was, again, a mixture of physical pain and anguish. It was, again, a horrifying thing. And so now, all of us deserved it. Now, remember in Scripture, what was the rule of punishment? Why, why again, do we see here again the, the crucifixion? God had said in His Word, when true judgment is given, men are judged according to what they do. And He says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a foot for a foot, a burning for burning. Justice was to be in light form. And the different sins. And most all of them had to do with stoning. A man who committed blasphemy as Christ was charged with should by Moses' law been stoned. They wanted something that would hurt. Something that he would have a hard time bearing up under. They loved to see this anguish. See, they were inhuman in their souls. I mean, they were sadistic. They were cold. They hated man apart from the Jews, and they could care less about anybody else. Christ Himself has already said, this is the worst generation of mankind on the earth since the beginning of time, and I think He meant until the end of time was that generation. And so now again, they come to crucify Christ. But also in that cross, remember, there is retribution. God demanded when a man stole, he had to pay for what he had stolen. If he couldn't get it, if he couldn't return it, he would have to pay for it in cash and he would have to give double. Sometimes when the sheep, if he stole a certain kind of sheep, he would have to give five times back counting all the labor and all the things that were lost in the time to get these things back. So it was due retribution. It was also, it was again, payment back for what had been stolen. 
God in all the law. The purpose of the law is not just to punish, but it's also to gain retribution for what was stolen or taken in those things. And so now God in Christ Jesus is taking our place. He is our substitute. He's the Lamb. He's the one who bears our burdens and it is He who is bearing it's as though He sinned. He had never sinned and never will sin. But the point is, God the Father treated Him like a sinner who was guilty of everything that every man who had ever been born is guilty of in one great big package. It's the sum total of all the sins of the elect that He's paying for on the cross. Which again, I think, this is why God allowed His punishment to be so visibly horrifying. And so now we see, as we ask the question, we see, what does it really mean then? That idea of retribution. The wages of sin is death. There's again, retribution. A man works by sinning. He gains and gains and gains. And the day of death comes and he'll pay the wages of his sin in like kind, in hell. But now again, crucifixion of Jesus is a picture and surety of judgment. If God so treats His Son in this way, how much greater will it be for those who do not obey Him, who do not believe Him and trust Him? Remember it says in God, as Luke says, God winked in time past when Paul's preaching and he's writing Paul's sermon. He says, in the past God winked at sins, but now... Since Christ in the resurrection, he's, but now God commands men everywhere to believe. And so those who do not believe will be judged in greater manner because God, again, will hold them accountable for what has been commanded them. They have been disobedient. You're disobeying now the God of the creation. And so now we see it shows you there is a time of surety when it will come. It's been almost 2,000 years since Christ was placed upon the cross. It was 4,000 years before Christ came. But remember, God destroyed the world. Everything that breathed upon the earth was done away with apart from those that God told Noah to put on the ark and then Noah and his family. Judgment will come. Just like those people in Noah's day, they laughed at him, they made fun of him, they scorned at him. They thought he was crazy. But the day came and it caught him unaware. So God says he will come. And so again, it's a picture of the surety of the final judgment. See, what Christ is looking at when he's going to the cross is the final day when he returns after he's been raised, he's been united with his Father, he's been exalted at the right hand of God the Father, and the Father gives all judgment unto him. And when he comes back, when he says, there's now no condemnation in you, Christ paid it all upon the cross. But that doesn't mean that we don't still need to go to him. Because we continuously sin. And He's commanded us now, if you continuously sin, and I am continuously cleansing you. You have been made a new person in Christ Jesus. He's rebuilding the image of God in us now. And as He builds, we still, as it were, 
are not whole until He comes back. Then He will be finished as the building of the new man in us, as we become more and more like God. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so God draws that picture for us. See, when you die now, the sinner goes to a holding place. It's like a prison that has, again, that which is basically a place for capital punishment to be awaited. These men are, are dead in their trespasses and sin and awaiting the day when all the graves open and then will be their day of final judgment. As the children of God in heaven, as, Paul, as John writes in the Revelation, he says, he's looking under the altar and it says, and these are the saints who again have, have died they're under the altar and they're praying to Christ and they're saying, How long, O Lord, just and mighty and true, do you wait to bring judgment upon those who killed us? See, they're cognizant of what they did in the time they had on the earth. They continue that in their spirit. The spirit is, a again, a rational thinking part of us without a body. So we are cognizant. Well, so are the unbelievers. They are cognizant of everything that they've done. And as they are in this holding place, awaiting the final judgment, when we would say the execution of hell forever, in which there is no hope, nothing. God says they're waiting there. And they are cognizant of their life. Already they are in misery thinking about what they know is coming. It's like these men watching the crucifixion of Christ, those who were not the Jews, and thinking how the agony and all those things are coming and thinking, these men, this is going to happen to us. We are going to be held accountable for everything that we've done in our life and everything we've done, again, has been done now, first of all, without love or even consideration of God and His Word. So there's no part of our life that is not under that judgment. How great a judgment we will have. Again, as we look at this judgment. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in one of his writings, he compares hell for the believer, or hell for the believer, hell for the, for the unbeliever in that sense. He says, first of all, again, when he looks at the believer, he says, Christ felt not any gnawing of a guilty condemning conscience as i said we have a conscience in heaven when we're with the lord after we die these these the saints look at what happened to them as they suffered under the hand of the wicked these men know what they have done as they die before they get cast into hell they have a gnawing conscience he says he felt no torment from the reigning inward corruptions and lust as, a, as the damned do. God gives them a conscience aware of all their sins and why they are going to go to hell forever. Christ never had to deal with that. You and I have to deal with it in some things, but at the same time, they're all dealt with in Christ Jesus. He's paid the debt of our guilt and sin. He's forgiven us those things, so we should forget them also. Again, Christ has not to consider that God hates him. 
Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4 and 5, we see there what he says. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hates, hatest all workers of iniquity. All of them. God hates the wicked. They are an abomination to Him. Psalm 7. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. God judges us in His Son. We are His children. He's chosen us and given us to His Son. His Son has given Himself for us and becoming man to bear our sin. But again, we see again the righteousness of God. Jonathan Edwards went on to say, Christ did not suffer despair as the wicked in hell. You talk about a guilty conscience. Why people today, so many of them, commit suicide? They have anguish. They're depressed. They can't face one day after another. They have to go to drugs. All these things. But these things continue in hell for Him. And there is no way out. There are no drugs in hell. There is only the guilty conscience that cannot be soothed quieted because when you think of one sin you think of another and on and on you see the wrath of God before you and again another thing that we see Christ on the cross knew that the pangs of hell were on him only for a short moment in time he could look as it were down the line and see light at the end of the tunnel. He knew it was but for a particular space of time and he would be relieved and he would again join his father in hell. Part of that anxiety that is given is that there is no hope. Jesus himself said, the worm, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says it's better for a man to go into hell having one arm or one eye than it is to go in with your whole body. Now, he's not saying that in the resurrection they're not going to be whole again. He's just saying it would be better if that happened. And so it is God is dealing with them. But God in His holiness and righteousness in His being, again, in our duty to keep His law. And this ought to draw us focus on God's law. Why are we having all the things that are happening in our own nation? Almost everything that we look in and we're disturbed about, whether it's woke, gay, you know, finances, it's all because man does not glorify God. And they hate God. And they will not come under Him. And what does God, God say? He says, I gave them up to a reprobate mind. And all the things that Jonathan Edwards writes about hell and, and compared to Christ and hell and their hell is true. It's coming upon them. It should give us an insight and a sense of urgency to tell people about Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's what God's promise is. Not mine, that's His. He's omnipotent. And so again... We see the holiness and the righteousness of God. And when you look at Scripture, the holiness of God 
is the most used reference as, as an epithet, as it were, a picture of God. Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. He's holy. That means He's separated from everything. He is not part of His creation, though He has joined into His creation with us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who is a man. It's only when He chooses to enter into the world with us that He comes. But you and I are able to now call Him our Father, which is in heaven. He calls us us His sons and His daughters. And He says to us, Be ye holy, as the Lord your God is holy, as your Father in heaven is holy. Be separated from the sinful world, and while you live in this world, you look to me. See, what God is doing to you and I in this world right now, if you're a Christian, when Adam fell, the image of God in us was broken. It wasn't taken out. Man is still made in God's image. That's why I believe we can say God loves the world. I mean, He loves it enough. It says He sends the sun to shine down upon the wicked and the righteous. He sends water to plant, to give the plants life for the wicked and the righteous. They still receive the benefits and blessings of God, but at the same time, they're under the wrath of God if they do not believe. He did not trust him. He says, I hate the workers of iniquity. See, but you and I, having known Christ now, God is restoring us in this time we have on the earth. He's remaking us. He's already made us new in Christ Jesus, but he's also reestablishing us as those who are made more and more into the image of Christ. It's a process while we are here now. Therefore, if you are a Christian, you must be confessing your sins. God says you are to continuously be confessing your sins because I am continuously cleansing you from all unrighteousness. Remember that story again of Christ that very night before the disciples as they come into the dinner, Christ takes that pail and washes their feet. He says you're already clean. You and I already have justification. The law of God has been settled for you and I. God has declared us as Christ. Because we were in Christ, we are considered to have kept the law perfectly as Christ because we kept it in Christ. He kept it for us. He applies His work to us. So we are seen like Him. But now, right now, we are to be separated. That is the word holy. Separated unto God and separated from the world and becoming more and more like Him. And when we fail to become more and more like Him, that's the sin. And we seek God's face and He says He hears us. He listens to us. He continuously cleansing us. He's washing our feet, as it were, as we go forward. And so now we see, again, the crucifixion for us is a story of love. A story of grace given to us, of mercy. We have nothing that, is, that we are owed. We were just like Barabbas. We were just like any other person who hates God. But God changed us by sending His Son to take our place. He is our Lamb, our substitute. His blood washes and cleanses us from sin. And now by His Spirit, we're made alive to accept those things and now go forward in Him. 
this verse, John 3, 16, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, especially for the believer. Those who are not believing, he goes on to say, will perish. For God so loved the world. And I believe you can take that word, it's the word cosmos. God loves all of His creation still. He sends the rain. He gives cool days and hot days. He gives everything we need on the globe to keep us. Because He is the one, the God who is the creator. He's also the sustainer. He provides for us. He takes care of the unbelieving nations as well as the believing nations. In that sense, He's showing forth what we would say, common grace to all men. He's a God who's no respecter of any. And He blesses us. What happens now is the unbeliever is unthankful. He's ungrateful. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Notice He doesn't say that He elects us. This passage is not dealing with election. It's there if you want to strain to get it. It's there. He just says, God so loved the world that whosoever is continuously believing. He doesn't say how and why he believes. He's just telling every man. Because God has commanded men everywhere to believe. And now he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Sin has been dealt with. That's why He gave His Son to deal with our sin. Not everybody's, but His elects. And those who are again chosen and who will come, will come. But no one comes except they are continuously believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many people have walked down an aisle and say, I believed, and then going out. And there's no difference. There's nothing about them that says, I love Christ. I want to keep His Word. I want to be holy as He's holy. They just go on their life and go away because they think that they walk down an aisle and ask Jesus to save them. That's it. That's all I need. No, Christ says, you must continuously believe. And to believe is to accept everything that the Word says about our Lord. But now notice, He says, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever is continuously believing should not perish, but continuously have everlasting life. Do you have that kind of life? If you are saved, you don't have to worry about the anguish of hell. Your hell has already come. What we are commanded to do is, again, in obedience to Christ, is go out and make, make disciples of all nations. Command men everywhere to believe. And again, it's up to God to save them. It's the Holy Spirit that makes them alive to take your words and apply them and apply the Word of God to them. So we are to just be the messengers. And we are to be those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank You for Your goodness and mercy to us. We thank You for the grace that is in Christ. Help us, Lord, to truly believe You. In Jesus' name, amen.